Hello and welcome to the Mason Hayes and Curran Law podcast. My name is Stephen Gillick and we are delighted to be joined today by Jerry Moriarty, CEO of the Irish Association of Pension Funds. Jerry, thanks a million for joining us today. No problem, Stephen. Uh, glad to be able to. Jerry, from your perspective in the IAPF, and obviously you, you're in close contact with pension scheme trustees, employers across the board, what effects are you seeing on the ground and what concerns are you seeing in relation to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on uh, the pensions landscape in Ireland? Well, I suppose, Stephen, like, um, you know, all other sectors, uh, everybody's had to adapt to just working in a different way. Um, I think the thing that's been really comforting is that, you know, a lot of things have just, the really important things have just continued to work. So, uh, you know, all the administrators who uh, do the kind of real work on the pension funds are all working from home. They've had to, you know, change the way they work and operate. But while all that was going on, the really important things that were happening, so contributions are continuing to be paid and continuing to be invested. And most importantly, pensions and benefits were continuing to be paid. And I know even the regulator has been quite public about they've been pleased about that. I think for trustees, it's a lot of the practical things around, um, and as you know yourself from the legal side, getting documents signed, the holding of trustee meetings, people have just had to rework that. But I think to a large extent, you know, it's been quite impressive in terms of how things have just been able to continue, not quite as normal, but just adopt to working in a different way. I think a lot of the schemes uh, had plans in place, whether they were Brexit plans or GDPR plans, that they rejigged when the pandemic came over the horizon and they were able to adapt these plans to the pandemic. And and it seems to me that they worked quite well. Absolutely. And I think it kind of highlights the the need to have contingency plans in place. And I'm guessing even people that may not have had a formal contingency plan in place developed one because they had to put something in operation. But, you know, particularly, I don't think anybody would have, when they were putting contingency plans together, would have exam- would have thought of something this drastic. Uh, but the fact that they have been able to continue, you know, the bulk of their work as normal, I think has been testament to, to doing that kind of pre-planning and probably highlights the need to do more of that in the future. Jerry, the IORP2 directive, it was due to be transposed into Irish legislation on the 13th of January 2019. So here we are almost two years later and still no legislation. Do you know what what has delayed this legislation and are you seeing it uh, resulting in confusion and frustration in the pensions industry at this stage? Yeah, I think there's certainly definitely a lot of frustration. I think, you know, we have been waiting for this for a long time. And it's not like it arrived out of the blue two years ago. There was a very long lead up time to this directive in terms of negotiations in Europe uh, to get agreements, which was a follow up from the first directive, which has been around a long time as well. So, you know, some some of the delay, it's hard to understand why it's taken so long. There have been obviously issues around, I know, in terms of getting legislation through, there was a priority given to any Brexit legislation. uh, And you can understand that because obviously it's a, you know, it's a pretty huge issue. Now we've had a lot of priority in legislation being given to COVID legislation. So I know in the parliamentary draftsman's office, that's causing a lot of issues in trying to get new legislation looked at in a period of time where you didn't have a government. There was a court case, a well-documented court case, which was taken against the implementation of the directive as well. So I guess all of those things have added up. 
but we would like to think now that we can just move on quickly because, you know, particularly this, a lot of the directive is focused around improving governance and it doesn't really send out a great signal. I think that we're now almost two years and practically the last country in Europe to implement it. And do you get a sense when you talk to trustees almost on a daily basis, I'd imagine, that they have a good handle on the increased governance measures that IORP2 will bring in and what they need to do and what actions they need to take to be compliant with these new uh, requirements? I think it varies. I think there are some areas that are pretty straightforward. I mean, it's you know it's not the longest directive in the world, and some of the areas are pretty clear. But there are also a lot of areas where there's flexibility. Um, so the country does the country that's implementing does have the ability to have a sort of, if you like, a proportionate implementation. It talks about having regard to the nature, scope, and size of the IRP of the of the pension scheme. So, for example, you would not expect the same measures to apply to a very small DC scheme here as to would apply to a very large Dutch scheme with hundreds of billions in assets and hundreds of people working there. So I think that kind of proportion makes perfect sense. But it does mean that there are lots of areas where it's very hard to understand or to work out in advance what the detail would be. I mean, it's clear there's going to be a lot of change. The regulator has been very clear about that. They've been talking about it changing the landscape. Uh, you know, some of the areas, so for example, you know, in terms of having trustees qualified, those areas are more straightforward. But areas around, um, you know, things like risk assessment and various function and key function holders that are going to have to be in place, we'll need more guidance around. Even when the legislation comes in, the Pensions Authority has highlighted it will be issuing a lot of guidance. And the fact that guidance is necessary would mean that people aren't able to plan until they actually see that. We're seeing a move away from defined benefit schemes and towards a defined contribution world. And most employers that I meet appear to be setting up and are interested in setting up defined contribution schemes when establishing a pension arrangement for their employees. And and one of the reasons for this, I, I presume, is that they're seen as less risky than the traditional defined benefit schemes in respect of employers' liabilities and obligations. But are there still risks associated for employers when they establish a DC scheme for their employees? Oh, absolutely. And I think it would be a mistake to purely go down the defined contribution route because you think there's no risk involved. Um, there are different kinds of risk. Clearly, the biggest risk that exists for employers in defined benefit plans is the funding risk. So if the scheme doesn't perform on the basis that you expect, then it generally comes back to the employer to increase contributions. Obviously, you can reduce benefits as well. But it's that variability in terms of contributions that are required and the difficulty in planning over the long term that's moving employers away from defined benefit. Now, there are arguments as well that with a much more mobile workforce, defined contribution actually suits that type of mobile workforce better than defined benefit, which is sort of designed really around people staying with the same employer for their whole working life, which tends not to happen. Uh, But there are many risks in defined contributions. So, you know, communication is really important and it's really important to get that right because it isn't clear for the employees until they actually retire what benefits they will get. So how you communicate on an ongoing basis, how you produce benefit statements, just you need to make sure that people just don't think just because they're in a pension scheme that they're going to be fine at retirement because that may not be the case if they're not paying in enough or their employer isn't paying in in enough. Just because you're in a scheme doesn't uh, mean you're going to have an adequate pension. 
Uh, font choices are really important and they need to be relevant to the employees you have um, and there needs to be an appropriate amount of risk there. So you don't you don't have that funding risk, but you have a lot of other risks. And I think one of the real risks, which um, is starting to become more apparent as people are approaching retirement in the fund contribution plans, is how you can guide guide people towards making the right choices for themselves at retirement. And, you know, some bigger employers and bigger schemes are looking at having advice available to members, whether that's separate independent advice or something you can do with your scheme administrators or having appropriate guidance in place. Because, you know, for a lot of defined contribution members throughout their lifetime in the plan, a lot of choices are made for them. So they're automatically included. They may end up in the default fund because they don't make a choice about what fund they want to be in. And suddenly it comes to retirement, it's all back to them as to whether they want to buy an annuity, how much tax-free cash they take, whether they want to transfer to an RF, how they invest that. So I think that guidance and retirement piece is a real risk for employers. And I think uh, people do need to look at that in terms of how they can help their employees while being cognizant at the same time, employers are not authorized to give financial advice. So there is a line there that you can cross and that can be quite difficult. And staying with the issue of risk, Jerry, IORP2 itself will see an increased focus on risk management with schemes required to conduct their own risk assessment or an ORA at least every three years. Putting together an ORA, when, when you look into it, is actually quite a complex undertaking. Do, do you get the sense from talking to trustees that they're nervous about this requirement and will require guidance on how to prepare an ORA? I think anybody that's looked at it or examined it should be quite nervous because it can be something that's very big and very detailed. Again, I think that piece we spoke about earlier about proportionality is going to be quite important here. Um, if you look at EOPA have produced some guidance around risk assessment, it's incredibly detailed and incredibly heavy. Uh, and it does seem to be designed for Again, you know, very, very large DB funds, particularly uh, because it talks about a lot about funding. But definitely there's going to have to be guidance on that because you can very, you know, own risk assessment can be looking at, you know, your operational risks. It can be similar to what trustees are already should be doing on an ongoing basis. And particularly we talked earlier about contingency planning, something like that. Or it can be something that's really, really detailed. And by being really detailed can be very, very costly as well. So. I do think that's one of those areas that people need to look at very closely as to what's appropriate for their type of scheme. The role of the trustee and the, the basically the, the requirements to be a trustee in the scheme are, are seem to be changing. If, if we look at IORP2 and how it will impact on who can act as a trustee in setting out certain fitness and probity requirements and certain qualification and experience benchmarks, would, would you be overly concerned about these new requirements? And has it, this the possibility of heralding the, the end of the lay trustee as we know it? I would be concerned about the end of the lay trustee. I think that would be a bad thing. I think in, in fairness, how, the, how it's planned to implement those requirements, I think is not unreasonable at the moment. So you're not talking about requirements for the entire trustee board. 
I think what the Pensions Authority set out in their last uh, consultation was they would require at least one of the trustees to be experienced. And I think experience was two years, having served two years previously as a trustee. And they would require one other trustee to have appropriate qualifications. So that does allow scope for lay trustees who may not meet either of those requirements. I, I would worry, though, if you were to lose lay trustees, I think there is a balance between clearly trusteeship is becoming more difficult. There are a lot, um, you know, some of the areas we talked about, issues like loan risk assessment, um, it is getting harder. You know, investments are getting more com- complex as well. But I do think lay trustees can bring a lot to the table. And I think particularly they understand the workforce. Um, they do see themselves as representing the members of the scheme because they are their colleague, work colleagues. So they do have a strong sense of ownership around the scheme. And they do ask difficult questions of the professionals. Sometimes, you know, trustees can almost be afraid to ask questions because they feel like, you know, they, they haven't been working in this, they don't understand the issue and it's going to be a stupid question. But sometimes those questions are the best questions because it, it does make people explain what they're talking about. And I think that's quite important because, you know, pensions is an area that's full of jargon. You know, you need a lot of years experience to understand all the complexities within it. But sometimes you need simple questions and simple language to cut through a lot of that so that the members of the scheme can, can understand it. So there are a lot of issues around trusteeship, and I think there's probably going to be more pressure on, for example, trustees being paid if they are going to be spending a lot more time at it. And I think regulators will be setting out the amount of time they expect expect trustees to spend. And I don't think, you know, a couple of meetings a year is going to cut it anymore. So there there is a question about how how you structure trusteeship. But I do definitely think it would be a mistake to lose late trustees because I do think they can add a lot to, um, to, to the trusteeship of a scheme. Yeah, the pensions regulator statement that he's made on several occasions, I think, whereby he stated that he isn't looking to professionalise trustees, but he's looking for trustees to be more professional. Um, So that's my impression I get, that we're not looking at the move to end lay trusteeship schemes, but that the professionalism of trustees is something that the authority uh, is looking at. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that does um, put a bit of responsibility in all of us to support trustees. Um, And that's certainly something at the IPF we'd work with quite a bit in trying to help trustees to understand what the role is about, but also to know what questions to ask and to know what issues are coming up and what's relevant and what's topical so that if their advisors aren't bringing issues to them, they can actually ask them. So I do think, yes, supporting trustees is going to be very important in a way that does allow lay trustees to continue to exist, but also to do a good job because there are a lot of pretty heavy responsibilities that they have. So how they can be supported in the best way possible is going to be really important. One final question really relates to deferred members. Under IORP 2, Deferred members will have to be, be provided with member benefit statements. Presumably, this will actually be quite difficult to carry out in practice and will create quite a burden on trustees to maintain accurate contact details for these members. It also seems to me, as a lawyer, uh, to be quite problematic, possibly from a GDPR perspective, with a high potential for errors in retaining addresses for these individuals and also uh, the secure retention of that that uh, data. Do you think the benefits for the deferred members in IORP2 outweigh 
potential negative consequences for trustees under this requirement? I would take a different view on that. I think actually having regular contact with your deferred trust or with your deferred members means it's much more likely that you're going to have their correct addresses and details when it comes to paid and benefits of retirement. And currently schemes can spend a lot of time and effort trying to track people down and sometimes end up not being able to pay people benefits because they haven't been able to contact them. So yeah, and, and that I think is a real failure of the system that, you know, the idea that somebody's living a you know, a more impoverished retirement than they need to purely because somebody hasn't got their address. So I think there's a lot of merit in being able to have that sort of ongoing correspondence because, you know, for example, somebody moving house is much more likely to tell somebody they've moved house or they've moved address uh, when they've had regular contact with them. If they haven't had any contact with them in a long time, then they're definitely not going to so I, I do think there's merit in um, that contact with deferred members. I do think, though, we do need to look at what are the best ways of doing that. I think the idea of you know sending documents out by post is not necessarily the most efficient way. I mean, clearly, people change addresses on a relatively regular basis. People tend to hold their email addresses, though. So you know, being able to email documents out is probably a better way of getting to people or having you know a, a website where people can log on and access their documents. So I think it's more about you know how you do it, but I, I do think there's a lot of merit in, in keeping contact with your deferred members. And I know personally, I have a deferred pension from a uh, time I worked in the UK, and I get a lot, a lot of correspondence from my pension scheme there. So I know if I was ever moving houses, one of the first things would pop into my mind in terms of okay, I need to notify them. Whereas if I hadn't had any contact with them the last 10 years, I'm less likely to do that. It will also have the potential of assisting in the area of member engagement because you you often see and and I often see uh, members or employees who have numerous different pension pots from numerous different employers and certainly in today's employment market that that is going to be the case going forward and to a certain extent they lose interest in a small pension pot whereas if they were getting regular updates on what they have then it would assist in terms of hey maybe i've got the option of transferring these benefits or there may be another option in relation to it and they become aware of their entire retirement pot as opposed to totally forgetting about it as is the case so many times these days yeah absolutely and i think that becomes very important then when you do come to retirement because you know for some people they may have different pension pots that have different uh, retirement ages attaching to them so that might help somebody who wants to sort of phase into retirement if you can take some of your benefits from one employer at age 60 and continue to work um, or if you can bring them all together so that you've got that better view and again you know administrators who are trying to administer retirement benefits where you're trying to get lots of different details from lots of different previous employments that can be a complete nightmare to work out you know the overall benefits you can then uh, pay and you know for example what kind of tax-free cash somebody's entitled to so having at least an awareness of where they are I think is the, the minimum that you want to encourage people to be able to do. Jerry. Thanks a million for joining us and for clearing up some of the confusion that exists around IORP2 and what pension trustees need to be aware of. For more of our events and podcasts, you can visit www.mhc.ie. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.